Thank you for listening to this recording of Family Bible Church's Sunday morning message. We pray that God will use this word to bless and encourage you. Matthew 18, verses 15 to 20. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. But if he will not hear you, Take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. You may be seated. Well, good morning. morning. So if you have uh, missed any of the last three Sundays, uh, we are now in uh, week number four of our, our current message series, which is um, all about uh, the marks of a healthy church. And um, this is a 10-week series in which we have identified a, a, a series of passages out of God's Word um, that will help us explore uh, the topic of a healthy church. And uh, as Pastor Bob uh, introduced us to last week, uh, these various topics also help us look at uh, these four ships or the, um, the armada of the church, uh, worship, discipleship, uh, fellowship, and stewardship. And those four pillars that you uh, have there on the screen that uh, we first uh, talked about last week, if you think about it, those pillars are kind of uh, great supports for pretty much everything that we do in the church today. Uh, everything pretty much falls into one of those categories. Of course, they overlap a lot, they intersect a lot, so um, it's not uh, kind of us isolating, but uh, when we have all of those four things operating well, uh, we really are well positioned to be a healthy church that can um, really do uh, have a great impact, if you will, in our community and the circle of influence God's given us. I mean, we live, you guys know this, this is not a big secret, but we're just living in times where, um, you know, there's less and less honoring of God going on. Uh, In BSF, they often talk about the, um, how is it they say it? They say it's this this poverty of God's word, this ignorance of God's word that's just increasing and getting worse and worse. So it's... uh, just an, uh, something that as we go through this and we really understand God's word, it just really equips us to be uh, more impactful in the world around us today um, and just more effective in what God's given us to do. And even in these areas, oh, and then the, the point that uh, Pastor Bob and David both made, we want to make sure we emphasize as we're going through all this that as elders in the church, we're not suggesting that we have any of these down pat or that we really are even doing them adequately. So it's not a, any kind of declaration that, you know, we figured this out. It's really more of a, a, a mission, a goal, if you will, to look at these things and then really identify where can we improve? Where do we need, where are we weakest? Where do we need to put more energy, both individually and corporately as a body of Christ? That each of these represent different opportunities for us to improve, to grow, to become healthier, stronger, and then have a greater impact again in this community and also in our individual communities. I mean, we're, as everyone knows, we're pretty geographically spread out, all the way from South Augusta to into Edgefield County and then out west, out past Greenbrier. So we cover a pretty large geographic area. And, you know, if we were to draw a little circle around each of our little geographies, and then you bring in things like work, like on the base at Fort Gordon and out at SRS, I mean, we really cover a big area for a relatively small church. So, yeah, we have lots of influence, lots of potential impact that we can have out there. Um, So we just want to uh, 
you know, keep pushing forward with all of that. So two weeks ago, or three weeks ago, really, David did a two-week series, if you remember, on what were called the building blocks of a healthy church. We looked at eight of them over a couple of weeks. Uh, the first week focused on six of them, and then fellowship and prayer were in week two. Um, so for me, that just provided a great reminder that the church does not need to reinvent itself. We don't have to reinvent ourselves to, to align with the culture today. God's word has given us these wonderful building blocks that if we focus on these things, we will be the kind of a church that God desires us to be and we'll have the kind of impact that we need to have. Um, we don't need to change to be more and more like the culture today. And then last week, Pastor Bob uh, again introduced us to this armada of the church, the worship, discipleship, fellowship, and stewardship. But the key point was that those four pillars have a foundation, and that foundation is Christ, and specifically his identity, where he asked that very important question in Matthew 16, who do you say that I am? And um, the reason that is so critical to us is that if we do not have a proper understanding of who Jesus is and what he has accomplished for us through the cross and then through his resurrection, if you think about it, especially the resurrection, if you think about it, the church has no basis whatsoever, has no value, has no lasting impact on anything if we do not have Christ as our foundation, and that includes his resurrection, which was the ultimate sign of his authority and power. The Apostle Paul said it this way in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, verses 13 through 17. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen, and if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Of course, we do not have to worry about this, since there is overwhelming evidence for both the death and resurrection of Jesus, and we can be fully confident that Jesus is exactly who he said he is, and who Peter declared him to be in Matthew 16, 16. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. So I want to just strongly encourage you, if you missed any of those past three messages, or um, maybe if you were just extra distracted that week, take time this week to go back and listen to them online. They're available through YouTube and uh, with Spotify and all kinds of places, or on our, you know, you can get the links on our Facebook page. There's lots of ways to get to those messages. Go back and listen to them so you have that solid starting point for where we're going in this whole series that we're going to be looking at. And then this morning, what we're going to do is zoom in on just one of those ships or pillars, and that's the one, uh, discipleship. And so this morning's message is entitled, Discipleship and Discipline in a Healthy Church. And what we'll do is we'll start by looking at the nature of true discipleship, and then take a look at what I believe is one of the uh, most often neglected or too often neglected disciplines of discipleship, namely how we deal with sin in the church. And that was from Matthew 18, which we just read about. Um, it's kind of actually a play on words. It's the discipline of church discipline. So we have um, that to look at. And then we'll also look at an example in, in Corinthians and then, and then wrap things up with some discussion around uh, the Great Commission of Christ. So, um, and this, is, this discipline of discipline... This is something that Jesus obviously cared a lot about because uh, it was interesting in going through the Gospel of Matthew and BSF this year, I had forgotten this, that the word church only appears twice in the four Gospels. Matthew 16, uh, which Pastor Bob covered last week, and then Matthew 18, which we just read from. So it's only mentioned twice. So the fact that the second time comes up and it's talking specifically about discipline and dealing with sin in the church, obviously... It was something Jesus uh, felt very strongly about that he wanted us to know about. So um, 
I'm also going to share uh, a little bit about the power behind uh, discipleship and effective discipline in the church. And then, as I mentioned, we'll take a look at um, the Great Commission of Matthew 28 as kind of an application, if you will, of all of this. So let me go ahead and open us up in prayer, and then we'll dive in. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this uh, series that we've embarked upon, looking at marks of a healthy church. Lord, there is a lot here uh, that um, helps us to grow Uh, both individually and especially corporately as a body of Christ. So, Lord, I just uh, pray, Lord, that as we go through the topic of discipleship and also uh, the discipline of discipline, that you will help us this morning to take away truth that we can apply to our own circumstances, our own situations, our own lives, and that you will also uh, use it to help us become more effective, Lord, as a body of believers both uh, in our individual circles of influence, but also in the influence that you've given us here in this uh, little area of Columbia County. So, Lord, thank you for what you're going to do this morning. We just commit it to you and ask in the power of your Holy Spirit that you would work in and through us this morning. In Christ's name, amen. So let me start by talking about um, the, just the general topic of discipleship. And let me just say up front that um, this is a huge topic. And it's also a very broad topic. There are a lot of different aspects to it. There's a lot of different things we can look at. So I just want to emphasize that what I'm going to share with you this morning is only the tip of the iceberg. And it may not even be the tip of the iceberg. It may just be a little chunk of the iceberg. So there's a lot of different things we can look at. Pastor Bob, in fact, in two weeks from now in the Ephesians passages, talk a little bit more about discipleship. As we said, those four ships kind of intersect and interact with one another. So this is not everything, but hopefully it'll give you some things to meditate on. Um, And it will just give you a better understanding of what your role is as a disciple of Christ, but also as a disciple maker for Christ. So let's begin uh, by kind of trying to define discipleship. So by definition, a disciple, uh, and not just a disciple of Christ, but just a disciple in general, is a follower. One who accepts and then assists in spreading the doctrines or teachings of another. So... Then, by extension, a Christian disciple specifically is a person who accepts and assists in the spreading of the good news of Jesus Christ, while also seeking to mature as a disciple individually, and while also helping other disciples to do likewise. Uh, The Greek word for disciple is mathetes. Uh, It means a learner, a pupil, or a disciple. And uh, that word, learner, pupil, disciple, is also the root of discipleship, disciple. It also comes into play with the word uh, discipline. And it's important to recognize that all believers, we should all be both disciples or learners, but we also should be disciple makers or teachers. And that, uh, that applies to everyone. If you, the moment you come to faith in Jesus Christ, you now have awareness and knowledge that you can pass on to somebody else. From that moment forward, uh, you can just simply tell the truth of what Jesus has just done in your life and share that with others. In fact, it's been my observation and, and, and really, really from my own life that um, I probably was more, most effective as a witness when I was younger in my faith than and it shouldn't be that way, but that's just the reality that sometimes our greatest excitement is at the beginning and it wanes over time and that shouldn't happen. And hopefully as we talk about discipleship today, uh, that uh, it certainly has helped me this week to think about that. So that's a little definition. So I, there's a couple of though, terms that are related and I want to talk about those contrasts for a minute. First of all, discipleship versus evangelism. Uh, Last week, uh, Pastor Bob, in his introduction, as he was going through those four pillars, he gave a definition for each. And for discipleship, he said, it is the process of training and equipping others in the teachings of our Messiah. And he said, this includes evangelism, which is many times separated into its own category. Uh, But I think they kind of go hand in hand, because evangelism, if you think about it, is actually the first and most important step in making disciples. Because without it, you won't have any disciples to disciple, so, or discipline, or anything else for that matter. So I think they really uh, work together, and it just view it as the first step in discipleship. And I just want to remind you, again, 
it doesn't matter where you are on your journey of faith, the power of your personal testimony should never be underestimated. Nobody can refute it. It's your personal testimony of what Jesus has done in your life and how he's proven himself faithful in your life. And so it's just a great thing to start with. If you never know where to start and you're worried about what to say to somebody, just share your story. Just share how Christ has intersected with your life, how he came to you in power, how the Holy Spirit just changed you. I mean, you don't even have to use any Christian-ease words, Christian words. Just talk about what Jesus has done for you. That's your personal testimony. It's a great place to start. And again, don't get hung up on what you don't know. Just rely on the Holy Spirit to help you share what you do know. Like Adisa's example a few minutes ago in testimony time about just bringing that Proverbs verse to you. You know, it's a verse that, you know, you probably read a bunch of times and knew, and maybe you didn't think you had it memorized, but lo and behold, there it is. You need it, Holy Spirit brings it to you. So I think too often we get hung up on what we don't know. We worry we don't have all the answers. And remember, it's okay to tell somebody you don't know. In fact, it provides a great opportunity for then a follow-up conversation where you say, you know, I've never really thought about that. Let me, let me do a little research and get back to you. And now you have an opportunity to sit down and you have something else to talk about where you go and you dig into it and you look into it. So don't ever be afraid to admit that you don't have all the answers because none of us have all the answers. So that's discipleship versus evangelism. The other one is sanctification versus discipleship. So these two are actually pretty tightly related um, and they overlap in a lot of different ways. But for me, the way I was thinking about this is I see sanctification as the work of the Holy Spirit with individual believers in order to make them more and more like Jesus over time. And sanctification has just such a strong focus on on the development of our personal holiness, becoming more and more holy over time, where the attractiveness of sin diminishes over time. Whereas discipleship, on the other hand, is a process through which the Holy Spirit helps two or more believers work together in order to mutually grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. So, for me, discipleship is more of a team sport, whereas sanctification is more of a one-on-one coaching activity, if you will, between you and the Holy Spirit. Uh, But they clearly have a lot of similarities uh, between the two. And then... What I want to do next is talk about four key components of discipleship. Now, these are four that I came up with. Um, There are more, and if you were to create your own list, you might have more than this. You might have four different ones if you limited yourself to four. But the four that I came up with are, number one, putting Jesus first in all things, knowing, trusting, and obeying God's word, fruitfulness, and then loving others, especially when it comes to discipleship, especially other believers discipleship beyond evangelism. So those are the four I came up with, and I'd like to just kind of quickly touch on each of these. So first of all, putting Jesus first in all things. Well, one of the prerequisites of being able to do that, or one of the fundamentals of doing that, is being set apart from the world. Becoming increasingly heavenly-minded and less earthly-minded, where God's will increasingly supersedes our own will the things that we want, and we're focused more on what he wants and desires for us. This, of course, requires putting off self-centeredness and increasingly putting on Christ-centeredness in our lives. As Jesus said to his disciples in Matthew 16, 24, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So we really need that kind of self-denial and and purging self-centeredness from our lives so we can really put Jesus first in all things. And then knowing, trusting, and obeying God's word. I mean, uh, this is not news to anyone here, but we need to be doers of the word and not just hearers of the word. Yes, absolutely, we need to read God's word. Absolutely, we need to study it. We need to meditate on it. We certainly need to memorize it, something we highly value here at Family Bible. But above all, we need to put it into practice. If we're not putting God's word into practice, um, we really kind of undermine those first four things that we do. So we really need to be doers of God's word. In John 8, Jesus said, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. So this is fundamental to being a disciple of Christ, abiding in my word, abiding in God's word. And you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. 
And of course, as we know, we don't get to pick and choose the scripture we like or the parts of God's word we like and want to apply and we set the other stuff aside. It's all of it. It's the whole package. Old Testament, New Testament, Gospels, Epistles, Psalms, Proverbs, Minor Prophets. It's all got value and benefit to us. I mean, I just love how God uses his word from beginning to end to to grow us and help us become more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ. Then number three is fruitfulness. So this is kind of my third key component, and it kind of flows from the first two, because if we abide in Christ and we abide in his word, the Holy Spirit will produce fruit in our lives. And he almost always does this in proportion to our obedience and faithfulness. Does it in proportion to it? So this fruit, of course, includes the fruit of the Spirit of Galatians 5, which we often talk about, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. So there's that last one. We probably like the first eight more than we like the the last one, self-control. But as the Holy Spirit produces that fruit in our lives, that will then often lead to producing fruit of a different kind, specifically fruit in the form of new disciples, as they desire to have what they see in us. So as we model that fruit of the Spirit, that's attractive, especially in this world today that is struggling with so many different things and it's just spiraling out of control. There's people who are just distressed and discouraged. Uh, they're lonely. Uh, they don't know where to turn for answers. And they see this peacefulness in our lives, this joy, the love. As they see those things in our life, they desire it. And then as we share truth with them and our personal testimony with them, it will attract them to Christ. And again, again, we just need to remember that it's not about us anyway. We don't produce that fruit on our own. Um, God graciously uses us in the process of producing fruit uh, in the terms of the lives of other people and helping others to grow. And then the last one that I've identified as a key component is loving others. So whereas the first three that we looked at are more like prerequisites for discipleship, I see this one as ultimately being at the heart of discipleship. In John 13, Jesus said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. As I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And it's this last key component, this loving others, um, that really provides a nice segue into our featured passage this week from Matthew 18. So, because um, it, it really helps us. Discipleship really is all about being others-focused, just as Jesus was. And again, he uses this word love. It's the word agape or agapao. And it's an unconditional love. But I think practically speaking, one way it manifests itself for us is putting the needs of others before our own needs. Just putting those first. Setting our needs aside. It doesn't mean our needs aren't important. It doesn't mean that God doesn't care about our needs. He does care. But he wants us to leave those in his hands so that we can be freed up to look into the needs of others and try to meet their needs. So we want to look at this idea of loving others through, specifically through discipline. And, I, and as I said in my introduction, this is what I think is an off or too often neglected discipline of discipleship. And again, it's our passage from Matthew 18 this morning. Um, you know, as I noted earlier, this passage uh, includes only the second and actually the final time where the word church is directly mentioned by Jesus in any of the four gospel accounts. Um, Pastor Bob again took us through the first one last week where in Matthew 16 where Jesus declared that his church would be founded upon a proper understanding of who he is but his church would also be founded by the man of God's choosing namely Peter and of course we see that unfold throughout the book of Acts especially the first half of the book of Acts but then two chapters later in Matthew 18 this is Jesus's only other direct reference to the church we find it in the context of his teaching regarding how his disciples are to handle sin within the church. And this tells me that Jesus understood just how dangerous and potentially damaging sin could be for his soon-to-be church, and he wanted those that would be its first leaders, as well as all of us that would follow in their footsteps, 
to understand that truth as well. And so he gives us here a very clear and concise process for us to follow in order to confront sin in the church. And the reason this connects so well to this, uh, this key component of loving others is that when we, uh, when we discipline others properly, if we do it the way God wants us to do it, it is really um, one of the most loving things that we can do for a fellow disciple. And that's why it's just so important, and we'll talk a lot more about that as we go on. Because sadly, as we see today, and we see it in the church all the time, and I think we see it in our own lives, frankly, most of us have this kind of disease, if you will. It's called the disease of fear of confrontation. Uh, and we just don't like to confront others. We don't want to deal with that. Or, we just, or we're just fearful of the, re- of the reaction we're going to get from somebody. Um, we tend to neglect this process that Jesus has given us here. And when we do that, when we have those delays, those delays can get pretty costly. Uh, they can get costly for the individuals involved. And ultimately, they get costly for the church itself. So, so let's go ahead and examine the process Jesus gives us in more detail. Uh, we'll take a look at how it was successfully applied eventually in the church at Corinth. Um, and that part in Corinth is also going to give us um, the goal of church discipline really comes to the fore when we look at the, the example in First uh, and Second Corinthians. And then we're going to consider some cautions, if you will, about how to apply this process uh, correctly. So um, first thing I want to do is just talk about the word discipline itself and um, just remind you, as we talked a little bit about in Sunday school, that these words are all very closely related. Um, disciple, discipleship, discipline, they all come in the Hebrew, they all come from the Hebrew word musar, and it simply means uh, discipline, chastening, correction, and self-discipline is, is a big part of that. And actually, where it needs to start um, in fact, if we would do a good job on self-discipline, we'd probably have a lot less need for discipline. So they all uh, fit together. Um, as uh, we also talked about a little bit this morning in Sunday school, you know, we often view discipleship as a positive thing and discipline as a negative thing when they are actually just two sides of the same coin. In fact, men especially love to quote Proverbs 27:17 uh, when we're talking about discipleship. You know, as iron sharpens iron, so a man sharpens the countenance of his friend. But when you think about ironing, sharpening iron, uh, a lot of sparks fly and a lot of heat is generated. So um, discipleship and discipline, you know, are really closely related and they go hand in hand. And then I came across this uh, verse in Job 5 this week. I hadn't, I haven't read Job in a while, but um, it just reminded me that we need godly discipline in order to produce godly disciples. In Job 5, 17 and 18, it says, Behold, happy is the man whom God corrects. Therefore, do not despise the chastening of the Almighty, for he bruises, but he binds up. He wounds, but his hands make whole. So he has an important purpose in this for us, and he really, uh, discipline discipline is actually a good thing for us. We need it. So let me go ahead and just read that part of the passage one more time because I want to point out a couple of things here before we get into the process itself. So it says, Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church... But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. So two notes I want to make about the text itself. Number one, you see that little word if? It's actually there five times in these uh, four verses. That if um, is in, in the Greek, it's called the third class condition. And it's in the third class condition all five times. And what that basically means is that Jesus is telling, was telling his disciples, he's telling us, that it is a matter of when, not if, this will be needed, this process will be needed. Uh, that's what the third class condition is all about. It's, it's kind of a future certainty, if you will. It's going to happen um, 
Because though the power of sin and death was broken at the cross, believers still have a sin nature. And that sin nature is going to trouble us. And it can, in fact, at times become a stumbling block for others. So um, it's, not, it's not a matter. We really need to learn this process and understand how to use it and be ready to use it uh, because we're going to need it. And then the second thing that I want to point out is you see those words against you in verse 15, moreover, your brother sins against you. Um, those two words against you are not in the earliest manuscripts of this verse. They could have, in fact, been a scribal edition at a later time. It's a little bit uncertain about that. But the point is that we really probably shouldn't limit this passage just to when uh, someone sins against us personally, that there are times when we're going to observe sin, and we may be the ones that are in the best position to address it with another person, and we need to be willing to do that and not just wait and not just say, oh, well, it's not affecting me directly, so it's not my business. Somebody else needs to handle it. But God may be calling you to handle it, um, so we need to be ready to use it, not just if it's uh, specifically something against us. So the process itself is pretty straightforward. It's got, it's got four steps, really. I'm going to talk about the fourth one a bit later. But you go to the one that sinned against you privately, and tell him his fault. And I've emphasized that word privately. That's very important to us. Uh, we need to do it privately. Uh, if we've shared it with somebody else, a third party first, we've already, we're already off track with applying this process. So uh, make sure you keep it private. And then, again, your goal is to get them at this step to recognize and repent of their offense against you. But remember, your goal is to win them, not to win an argument. Your goal is to win them, not to win an argument. If this fails, if they fail to hear you, if they fail to respond, go again. This time, take two or three witnesses with you. And if that fails, take the matter before the church, starting with church leadership, if they are not already involved from step number two. The other thing about step number two is when it talks about two or three witnesses, Chances are that those witnesses were not witnesses to the offense itself or the sin itself. But rather, what they're going to do is serve as witnesses of the conversation between the two parties that are involved. And their role would be to listen to both parties and establish or determine if the accusation was valid. And in doing so, they would be fulfilling the requirement of Deuteronomy 19.15 that Jesus partially quotes from in, in this part of the passage. The full verse actually says, he quotes the second part of it. The full verse, 1915, says, One witness shall not rise against a man concerning any iniquity or any sin that he commits. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, the matter shall be established. So that's where the two or three witnesses comes from. It comes from the Old Testament law in Deuteronomy. And then, as I mentioned, there is actually a fourth step to this if the individual refuses to listen to the church, and we'll talk about that momentarily. But I do want to take a minute to talk about what is missing here, or what Jesus does not uh, specifically uh, state here. First of all uh, is the nature of the sin. The overall context of Matthew 18 involves causing others to stumble. And so we need to always ask ourselves when we're thinking about whether or not we're going to apply this process, been sinned against or are we just irritated? I believe that these instructions that Jesus gives us here were intended to give us a clear process to follow, primarily in cases where there is sin without guilt or remorse, and particularly when there is sin that is causing us or someone else in the church to stumble. I do not believe that Jesus intended for us to ever use them as a license for making a frontal attack on every person who hurts or slights us. We need to allow there to be room for grace. And it is essential that when someone does wrong us, that we do not do the exact opposite of what Jesus is teaching here, namely to turn away in anger or resentment, seek revenge, or engage in gossip, as if you think about it, that's how the world deals with offenses. And we don't want to be like the world. So we'd rather follow this process. So let's go ahead and take a, a brief look at an actual application of the process 
using um, 1 Corinthians 5. So if you want to turn to 1 Corinthians 5, you can do that. Um, I'm not going to, I'm going to summarize what takes place in 1 Corinthians 5, but um, you can kind of follow along or, or make a note of it for later study. Uh, oh, I'm sorry, before we look at 1 Corinthians 5, the, the second thing that's missing in this process that Jesus gives us is time frames. He doesn't say, for instance, go to the one that sinned against you privately, tell him his fault, give him 10 minutes, and then if he doesn't respond, go find some witnesses and bring those. There could be cases where, you know, it gets pretty urgent. But most of the time, again, we need to allow room for grace. We need to be patient. We need to give the Holy Spirit time to work. People need time to process. People need time to think about, meditate on what you've shared with them think back on it. And that especially is true if we've kind of delayed, you know, maybe this offense has happened and maybe it wasn't uh, earlier that day. Maybe we kind of sat and we stewed on it. We thought about it. Do I really need to go to this person? And then we go to them a week later, a month later, and we bring up something that they don't even remember. So um, we do need to, you know, be flexible, I think, with the time frames involved here. Jesus doesn't give us specific time frames. We need to be patient, give the Holy Spirit time to work. Um, so let's go ahead and take a look at this passage from 1 Corinthians 5. And the situation described here in the beginning of 1 Corinthians 5 was actually one where the relatively new church in Corinth was failing to apply the process that we just looked at. Now, admittedly, there's probably a pretty good chance that they weren't aware of this process. I don't know how much Paul had taught them or whether he had talked them through this whole thing, Um, but clearly they were not applying it. Um, In fact, not only were they not applying the process to address a very significant sin involving sexual immorality, they were also boasting about, rather than mourning, what a member of their assembly had done. And when the Apostle Paul learns about this while he is in Ephesus... He seeks to get them back on track by writing to the church and instructing them to intervene immediately before that sin had a chance to spread further and contaminate the entire church at Corinth. And not just contaminate the church, but destroy their witness to the community around them. Paul essentially shames them into action by basically declaring that they were allowing a kind of sin that even unsaved Gentiles did not practice. This was, an, this was a case where an egregious sin had already become known, not just within the church, but apparently in the community at large, or at least more than just inside the church. And as we saw in Matthew eighteen seventeen, Jesus told his disciples that if the sinner refuses to hear the church, they were to treat him like a heathen and a tax collector. And Paul uses a bit different language, even stronger language, but they're all interrelated, Uh, The bottom line is that what this individual had done when it gets to this point is they had forfeited the blessings and benefits of being treated as a brother or sister in Christ, and they needed to be treated now as one outside the church. So they weren't hated. We have to treat them lovingly, not harshly, but we don't hold them in close fellowship either. So there's a clear separation that then takes place with the hope, again, of restoration. Because that's the goal of all this, is restoration. The goal of discipline in the church is always repentance that is then followed by restoration and reconciliation. And that appears to be what happened in Corinth. Because when you look at 2 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul talks about a situation there. Now, we can't be 100% certain that Paul is talking about the same man in that passage, but I think that does seem like a reasonable interpretation. And in many... Uh, Bible scholars and commentators would align 2 Corinthians 2 with this same situation that uh, is in 1 Corinthians 5. But the key verses there about this uh, reconciliation that Paul uses are 6 through 8, where he says, This punishment, which was inflicted by the majority, is sufficient for such a man, so that, on the contrary, you ought rather to forgive and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. Therefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love to him. The idea being that we always seek to discipline in love and with a heartfelt desire to see repentance 
and reconciliation as the outcome. Well, let me give you a few cautions now um, about applying this process. Again, I've talked about a couple of these already. First of all, avoid the tendency to rush or short-circuit the process. Short-circuiting would be you skip step one and you immediately go and find two or three witnesses, or maybe you short-circuit steps one and two. You don't want to deal with that. You just want the church to know about it, and so you bring it to the church. And as elders, chances are that unless it's, again, a situation like they were dealing with in 1 Corinthians maybe, you know, something really egregious and serious, we're probably going to encourage you to go back to step one and start with step one, follow the process. So don't short-circuit the process. Don't give up too quickly on any of the steps. Again, that gets back to the time frame. We need to be patient. We need to uh, use grace. We need to give people a chance to process. Um, it can be really easy if we don't get the result we want to just give up. And then we don't even go to step two. Or if step two didn't work, we don't even go to step three, whatever. We don't want to give up too quickly on any of the steps. If you are on the receiving end of church discipline, please resist the urge to flee. And what I mean by that is that in Corinth, of course, there was no place else to go. There was only one church, the Church of Corinth. And the only place they could go is back to the world. But obviously today, we have lots of churches. And a lot of times the way people react to church discipline is they just pick up their things, out the door, take it to another church. And if that church leadership is wise, they're going to send them back to the church that they walked out of to deal with the situation. But that, frankly, in my experience, doesn't happen very often. Um, We're so engaged with this numbers thing that we welcome new people and they're bringing some baggage in that really should have been dealt with and it wasn't dealt with. And guess what's going to happen in that new church? It's going to manifest itself, maybe not in the same way, but it'll manifest itself sooner or later. So resist the urge to flee, stick it out, listen, and together, you know, we follow the process and hopefully we get repentance. Again, none of this is easy, and I don't want to make it sound like it's easy. Actually, it's very hard, and it's why I think um, I had some notes back when David taught us through Matthew 18 four years ago, and David said, if it was easy, we would do it all the time. But because it's hard, we resist it and avoid it. Um, So ask the Lord to give you the courage you need and then the perseverance you need when you're going through it. And then another one is, remember, when sin is not dealt with honestly, it always spreads along with its consequences. And I know Ravi Zacharias has been discredited because of some of his personal behaviors, but this quote is actually from Ravi Zacharias, I believe, originally, And he just reminds us about sin, and it is a good quote, and that's why I like to still use it. Sin will take you and others besides you, but sin will take you further than you want to go. It'll keep you longer than you want to stay, and it'll cost you far more than you want to pay. So when we uh, take the approach of just kind of not dealing with a sin, especially sin that is causing others to stumble, um, things are going to get worse, not better. It's always going to work out that way. And then there's one other caution that we need to be mindful of, namely that this is one of a number of areas in the church where, generally speaking, men should be the ones to discipline other men and women should be the ones to discipline other women, at least when dealing with issues that are external to our own families. So again, outside the family unit. Because God has established a clear authority structure that we do not want to violate the principles of which we find uh, in a combination of 1 Timothy 2, 1 Corinthians 11, and 1 Corinthians 14. So, for example, and I didn't ask Ms. Gail if I could use her as an example, but I'm going to do it anyway. Um, if, if I were to sin against Gail in such a way that Gail felt that the Matthew 18 process needed to be initiated, she would need to go to David first with that, and then David would come to me. And similarly speaking, if I felt that Gail had sinned against me in some way that I felt Matthew 18 needed to be applied, my first step is not to go to Gail, but to go to David and maintain that hierarchy within the home, and then David could talk to Gail about that. So that's really important for us to remember. Um, And then in those cases where a woman is sinned against, particularly a woman is sinned against, who does not have a husband in the church, 
or is a widow, they should approach one of the elders first or perhaps one of the deacons. Again, it depends on the nature of the situation, but that would be their recourse if they didn't feel like they had uh, someone within their own family that they could turn to. They could turn to the church leadership for that. So because this is not easy and because it's got kind of a challenge, um, I want to give you um, what I'm calling the power behind effective uh, discipline and discipleship, and it involves three things, humility, prayer, and authority. Um, and hopefully, uh, this will give you some encouragement so that when you do feel that God is calling you to apply this process uh, to discipline a brother or sister in Christ, that by relying on those three things, uh, you'll be better equipped uh, to handle it and handle it well. So let's talk about uh, each of them uh, quickly. First of all, humility. Um, and the verse I picked out here was Matthew 7, 1 through 5, which is in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, because a big part of humility is making sure, again, that you address your own issues first. Address this, he says, the plank in your own eye before you start worrying about the speck in your brother's eye. Um, so before you can really start addressing the sin of others, you do need to do some self-examination. First um, Peter 5, which we looked at in Sunday school this morning, also has some great teaching about humility and the importance of humility uh, in our dealings with each other and the way we handle suffering. Uh, and so I encourage you to look at First Peter 5 if you were not in Sunday school this morning. So humility is key to this. Prayer is also key. I encourage you, um, again, and it's in our passage this week in verses 19 and 20, Bathe all of this in prayer. Pray about it before you even think about initiating Matthew 18. Then pray before you go to talk to the individual. And then pray about, if if they don't listen to you and you feel like you need to move to step two, pray about who those two or three witnesses should be, and then pray with the two or three other witnesses before you go as a group. And then, of course, pray before you bring it to the church. So pray, pray, pray. It is really essential uh, for this to go well. And then in Matthew 18, 18, it says, Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. One application of that verse is the fact that we have been given authority to address sin, that we don't need to take it to the church first. That's why the process is outlined in those steps the way it is that you have the authority to address sin as an individual, especially when you have been sinned against. So you can take advantage of that authority. So humility, prayer, and authority, I believe, are the, is the power, behind effective, uh, it's the power behind effective discipleship in general. Specifically, it's very important in the area of discipline. So then in the way of application of all of this, I want to take some time this morning. Pastor Bob... Uh, mentioned a little bit about Jesus' Great Commission last week, but I want to take more of an in-depth look at Jesus' Great Commission because um, these truths uh, regarding discipleship and the kind of interwoven discipline of discipline, um, if you would turn to Matthew 28, uh, the very end, it's the last five verses of the Gospel according to Matthew, and there we find a very powerful challenge by Jesus. Most of us are familiar with this, uh, but this challenge that he issues, that he issues to us, can be very helpful to us. Uh, uh, one, to help us be more committed to discipleship, generally speaking, but uh, also discipleship in the church. And I think it also can help give us um, a greater desire or a greater willingness, if you will, to apply discipline when, when we need to. So, of course... Um, those verses are, these verses are referred to as Jesus' Great Commission. That's how we usually uh, talk about them. Um, it's kind of a call to arms, if you will, for all disciples of Christ. And it can really help us apply uh, the truths about discipleship that we find throughout God's word, including those we looked at this morning. So just go ahead and read it. Uh, I'll read it for us. Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. When they saw him, they worshipped him, some doubted, and Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, 
teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. In commissioning his disciples, Jesus gives them a clear focus and a clear mission by providing them with three things here. He gives them an empowering truth, he issues a call to action, and then he blesses them with a stabilizing promise. So let's take a look at each of those in turn, uh, beginning with this empowering truth regarding his authority, where he says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Because that authority provides a strong and solid foundation, both for the commission that he's about to give them, but I think it also gives us a very strong uh, foundation for this whole area of discipleship. So, of course, if you're familiar with the gospel according to Matthew in particular, or really all four of the gospels, Jesus um, abundantly demonstrated his authority throughout his three-year public ministry. Uh, He did that through his teaching. You'll remember that at one point, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, they declare, you know, he teaches with authority, unlike uh, the teachers of the law and the scribes. So he, they, even the people recognized the authority of his teaching. But beyond his teaching were the miracles, miracles that included demonstrations of his total control over nature, over diseases, over disabilities, even death itself. And he even demonstrated his deity by declaring his authority to forgive sin, which is something that only God could do, and which is ultimately what led to their decision to want him crucified, was his declaration that he was God. And then, of course, by his resurrection from the dead after he was crucified, that was kind of the capstone, if you will, for all of that authority. And, of course, it was authority that had been given to him by his father. And and since Jesus holds all authority, he has the right to delegate that authority to whomever he chooses. And that's what he's doing here in his great commission. He initially delegated that authority to his disciples, but by extension, that authority has come to us as well. And then in verse 19, he issues this call to action, which is really at the heart of the Great Commission. So he says, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And again, not just for them at that time, but for us today that have followed in their footsteps. And it's really important for us to recognize that this is Jesus' great commission of us. It's not his great suggestion to us. In other words, it's not optional. This is not a suggestion. And note that there are four distinct activities here. There's just one command supported by three distinct activities. The command is to make disciples, and we accomplish that by going, baptizing, and teaching. The literal translation of the first part of Jesus' command is, while you are going, make disciples of all the nations. So it's not something that you have to initiate. Once you become a disciple, the going process has started, and it's continuous. So you're going, so go ahead and make some disciples while you're going. No matter where you are, we should be serving as witnesses for Jesus Christ, seeking to win others to him, encouraging others in the body, helping disciples to grow. And it's very important, this is not going to be rocket science news to anyone, but of course, going and making disciples does not involve, you know, immediately a lot of times our minds think about dropping everything, becoming a missionary, going to a foreign country, and serving there, and therefore I'm now going. But it involves everything from that, it can involve that, but it involves everything all the way down to you getting out of your house, going out to the fence, or walking across the street and having a conversation with a neighbor because you never know where that conversation is going to lead. Or, you know, as um, you're in a restaurant and the waitress comes over and says, you know, hey, my name is Susan. Um, welcome. You know, right then and there, you can engage them in conversation, have a little chat with them. Ask them what you can pray for them about. That's, uh, I've shared this a number of times. My aunt and uncle in Arizona, uh, when Karen and I were there back in 2000, I think it was, that's the first time I had seen that done. And they do it every time they go out to eat. 
every single time. When the waitress comes over, she introduces herself or the gentleman introduces himself, and they say, hey, we're about to ask a blessing for our meal. Is there something we can pray with you about? And they had told me at that time, and it's been my experience, I don't apply this as often as I should, not like they did, but they had told me, and it's been my experience, I've never gotten a, uh, a, any kind of negative reaction to that. The worst thing that's ever happened is somebody said, no, I'm good. I'm good. That's the, that's the worst thing that's ever happened. And one time up in North Carolina, I was on a golf trip with some buddies, and the guy said, absolutely, this is what we can pray for. I'm getting ready to go back to school. I need you to pray for this. And he said, in fact, let me pray with you. And he just put down his little order pad, and we held hands, and we just prayed at the table in this little diner. So that was a, kind of a cool experience. So that's just another way that we can do this. And then, of course, it involves everything between those extremes. So from the very simple uh, to maybe the more complex of going to a foreign country. Um, but, of course, one way we can do it is simply um, support the activities of others that are doing it. So we do that certainly through prayer and through financial support of other missionaries and others, other ministries. But then, of course, as many of you have done, including even some of the younger folks here, there's short-term missions opportunities. And, of course, Dr. Steve is kind of our resident expert about that. He's done 30-some-odd trips. He's got Mexico coming up in June uh, in early July, so he's got his next one coming up. So he's a great resource. If you've been thinking about doing this and you're unsure what's involved, here's your man right here. He can fill you in on some details and point you in the right direction. And, again, short-term missions does not have to be. There are evangelistic mission trips. There are trips, if you feel like your skills are with your hands, building, doing things, there are trips where you go and you help build churches or other facilities for ministries that don't have what we have access to in this country. So there's trips like that. There's the medical missions where, correct me if I'm wrong, but you need people that are not medically trained to do the administrative side of things, to check people in. So, you know, it doesn't matter what your skills are. It really comes down to just hearing God's call and then responding to God's call. But here's the thing that's common to all going, all going, no matter what it looks like. You've got to get out of your comfort zone. Almost every time, it's going to involve getting out of your comfort zone. Uh, um, I'm sure even today you would say that, you know, there's things you'd probably rather do than go to Mexico. Uh, it's uncomfortable. A lot of times you go, it's, it's, you know, we think it's humid in Georgia. When you go to Central America, I think humidity has a whole new definition. So, you know, it's uncomfortable physically. Uh, you may not know the language. You have to work through an interpreter. You know, you're going to have to get out of your comfort zone sooner or later. Walking to your fence line, depending on your, re- your relationship with that neighbor, how that's gone in the past, that can be getting out of your comfort zone. So we need to get out of our comfort zone. And we, we also need to remember that this going doesn't have an expiration date. I mean, we've probably heard accounts of some people that were born in the mission field and actually stayed in the mission field all their lives. There's other people. I met a man in BSF last year in our BSF class um, when we were doing the book of Genesis. It was his, he had come just for the last six or eight weeks of the class. Um, but he had just retired from his job at SRS, but he and his wife had been called to the mission field in West Africa uh, because he had some skills, and it's one of those stations where they have one of the giant um, satellite antennas where they're uh, um, broadcasting the gospel and other Christian programming. And they needed somebody to go and, and be the maintenance guy for that tower. And so they decided that God was calling them to that. Transworld Radio is the missionary mission agency. And so they're leaving, I think, later this month or early next month, and they're heading over to West Africa to do that. So, you know, sometimes it becomes a second career for some people. So, um, again, the key thing, just listen for God's call, respond in obedience. And then, as I shared, I think... Um, when uh, Pastor Bob's brother was here a few weeks back, um, trust God for the resources. Um, I think at that time, if you weren't here, I shared the little thing about Corey Ten Boom and her, sis- and, and her sister Betsy. When they were still in the concentration camp, you know, terrible uh, conditions and stuff like that, um, uh, I think it was um, Betsy who was the one that had suggested, hey, after we get done with this, after God gets us out of here, we're going to go around the world and we're going to visit places, and, and we're going to share the truth about Jesus Christ with others. And Corey said to her, 
Well, that would be awfully expensive to do that. Where would we possibly get the resource to do that? And Betsy just replied to her. Here, and I think Betsy died just several days after this. But she turns to her sister and said, we're just going to approach our great God who owns a cattle on a thousand hills and ask him to sell a couple of cows. And then off we'll go. And then if you ever read that book, uh, her book called uh, Tramp for the Lord uh, that Corey later wrote, it's amazing. At first, she would, at first, because it was the norm, she would go to these places and make an appeal for money uh, as part of her presentation, an appeal for resources. And it wasn't long before God convicted her of that and just said, cut that out. You know, no more. I'll provide what you need. And God provided every step of the way. And she never did. Apparently, never again did she make a public appeal uh, for funds as she talked about things like that. God just provided and, he provi- and she, I mean, literally, it's a really neat book to read, Tramp for the Lord. I mean, she went everywhere, all continents, everywhere, and invitation. Sometimes she went places, um, and she didn't even know who to ask for when she got there or why she was going necessarily. God said, go to Brazil. So she'd go to Brazil. And when she got to Brazil, God, somebody would walk up to her and open this door to talk and go and, and just do, and she'd do it, and then... And she had they, this, the suitcase that they, and she had one assistant with her. And the two of them just went all over the place. Of course, so that's going, but it's not enough just to go. We go for a specific purpose, to make disciples. And as I noted earlier, that the first part is going, but then there's baptizing and teaching. And again, making disciples is not limited to the evangelization of unbelievers. Because learning more about God is a lifelong adventure for all of us. So discipleship also includes uh, everything that happens from the time we become a disciple and then going forward from that. And then remember, there are really only two kinds of believers in the church today. There are participants in Jesus' commission, and then there are spectators. So you're either a participant or you're a spectator, and the church doesn't need any more spectators. So I would suggest that if we think we're a spectator, that we transition and become a participant. There's a lot of roles. As I said, this is a huge topic. There are a lot of different roles you could fill. Ask God to show you what role he's calling you to fill. And then Jesus tacks on this wonderful stabilizing promise at the end. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. You know, we often refer to this as a promise, but in reality, it's a fact. It's not so much a promise as it is a fact. We can confidently participate in Jesus' great commission because he is with us and he always will be with us and he promises never to leave us nor forsake us. And that fact should give us all the courage and boldness that we need to faithfully go and make disciples in his name. So this uh, ending of Matthew 28, these last five verses in Matthew 28, is not the final time that Jesus spoke to or taught his disciples. Many scholars believe that these verses, this commission, was kind of his final marching orders to his disciples, or really the last command that he gave them, and therefore the last command that he's given us before he ascended back to heaven. And so let's encourage one another to continually make his last command our first concern. So in the end, when you consider those four key components of discipleship, where are you the weakest? Where are you the weakest? Here they are again. Putting Jesus first in all things, knowing, trusting, and obeying God's word, fruitfulness, and then loving others. And then along those lines, what steps do you need to take to strengthen that component that you're weak in? And then once you've done that, go on to number two and work on that one. Confronting sin in others is never easy, but it is one of the most loving things we can do for another believer. Is there someone that you need to approach this week where you've been putting it off and you haven't been taking the steps, you haven't been following the process, and if you need counsel on that, feel free to approach Steve or David or Pastor Bob or myself, and we can help provide guidance in that. But, you know, I would encourage you, if it needs to be applied, apply it. And then how are you stewarding the authority Jesus has delegated to you for making disciples? Who are you currently discipling and who is discipling you? 
I know David has mentioned this on a number of occasions when he's taught at the, here at Family Bible. And so this would be for men, specifically for us, but, but if you are desiring to have a discipling relationship with another man, please let one of us know about it. And either we'll try to fill that role or we'll find someone to fill that role for you. It's really important. I have been, I cannot tell you how blessed I have been. I've been a believer now for 35, 36 years, 36, 36. And the vast majority of that time, I've had the, 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 the blessing of meeting with another man in the church, um, you know, one-on-one, weekly, every other week. It's varied uh, over time. And especially early in my, uh, in my walk with Christ, there was a, a, a great friend of mine, uh, Ken, and we met on Monday morning for breakfast uh, for seven straight years until Ken went to the mission field with his family. Um, but we met for seven straight years, and I think we probably missed, I could count on two hands how many times we missed over seven years. And it was just, for a new believer like me, it was just a wonderful experience, uh, being able to bounce things off each other, encourage each other, uh, challenge each other. Um, I've shared before how the one I remember the best was, you know, I had to travel a lot for work at the time. And um, I was a technical service uh, uh, person for a company where you had to go visit customers and help solve their problems. And you traveled with the salesperson for that region that you were in. Well, the company I worked for had maybe six regions in the United States, and five of them had male uh, salespeople. One of them, East Coast, had a female she happened to be a good friend of Karen's and I, her and her husband, um, Mike and me. We, we hung around with them. We did a lot of things with them. But for me to service customers involved overnight trips. And on the East Coast, you drove. You didn't fly. So there was this one customer in Virginia. We were in Pennsylvania. And you'd make that six-hour drive down the eastern shore of Maryland uh, to Virginia. And the first time that that was going to happen, Ken and I were meeting for breakfast. And he says, well, what's going on this week? And I said, well, I'm going down to Virginia. Uh, with Meg. And he goes, you're doing what? He said, your company allows, you know, men and women who aren't married to travel together like that? And my initial reaction at the time was, Ken, come on. I mean, what, what's the big deal? That's the way business works today. That's the way things happen. And so then we talked through. He said, okay, if that has to happen, let's talk about some firm guideposts for this, what you're not going to talk about. And he knew, and Karen knew, obviously, and we're friends with them, but still, there were things, we were subjects that were off limits, including our marriages or anything to go, have to do with our, our marriages. So that was very helpful to me because that discipling relationship, otherwise, I would not have been had my antenna attuned to that. And so we need to be very careful with things like that in our lives. And so it really helps. Really encourage you, same for the women. If you need somebody to disciple you, you know, let, let us know, and we can try to coordinate that. But again, men, men with men, women with women, it's really an important thing. And then finally, of course, is there a need to change the way you think and therefore change the way you act? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to take at least a deeper dive, if not a complete dive, into the topic of discipleship and also discipline in the church. Lord, these are uh, key topics to help us be a healthy church. So, Lord, I just pray that you would help us to apply what we've heard this morning and help us identify ways in which we can apply it or apply it better. Lord, because our desire is to be a healthy church that has a greater and greater influence and impact in the community around us and in our individual lives. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.